Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Nation of Israel as the People of God. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, August the 3rd, 2014. There's no nation like Israel, writes Ari Shavit, in his critically acclaimed bestseller, My Promised Land. There are many reasons for that claim, but two in particular define his deeply personal narrative about modern Israel. Occupation and intimidation. He writes, In the 21st century, there is no other nation that is occupying another people as we do, and there is no other nation that is intimidated as we are. Israel has always lived with existential fear as a profoundly vulnerable island of six million Jews in a sea of 1.5 billion Muslims. The Jewish imagination goes to black humor is paranoia confirmed by history. Israel was also founded by the violent expulsion and subjugation of 700,000 Palestinians, and so it's shadowed with a sense of moral ambiguity. Its ethical idealism struggles with the political realities of raw power. In the documentary film The Gatekeepers, which interviews all six living former heads of Shin Bet, Israel's secret security agency that's the rough equivalent of the CIA, one of them remarks, we've become a cruel people. Shavit is a leading Israeli journalist, a columnist for Haaretz, their leading liberal newspaper, a commentator on Israeli public television, and a self-described peacenik. But his narrative never takes the easy way out of partisan ideology. Leon Wieseltier, the literary editor of the New Republic, calls Shavit's work the least tendentious book about Israel I have ever read. Israel's story is full of ambiguity and core contradictions, writes Shavit, and thus the subtitle of his book, The Triumph and Tragedy of Israel. The triumph is obvious. After 3,000 years of history, after exodus and exile, annihilation and assimilation, the ancient Jews have a modern state. In his five-episode Story of the Jews, 2014, the historian Simon Shama of Columbia University admits that this feels something like a miracle. About 40% of the world's Jews live in Israel. Another 40% live in the United States. But the moral tragedy is also obvious. John Kerry recently said that Israel risks becoming in an apartheid state. Shavit describes his experience as a jailer for the IDF in a Gaza detention camp, guarding prisoners in barbed wire cages. It was uncomfortably suggestive of the Holocaust. So, what is ancient Israel, or modern Judaism? 
Who is a Jew in a putative Israeli democracy? How does one stay Jewish in a non-Jewish world? These questions drive the narratives of Shavit and Shama. I was reminded of the different ways to answer these questions a few weeks ago when having lunch with three Jewish neighbors. One was conservative, another reformed, and the third was reconstructionist, which by some interpretations is not even theistic. And across the street from my house is an Orthodox study center. The Kabbalist mystical tradition is different still. The Apostle Paul, that Hebrew of Hebrews who bragged that he was more zealous for Judaism than anyone, never could have imagined how his epistle for this week would resonate with such force 2,000 years later. In Romans 9-2, he writes about his great sorrow and unceasing grief for his fellow Jews. Of course, the ancient Bible isn't a blueprint for modern politics. We shouldn't expect Paul to prognosticate about contemporary Israel. And yet Romans 9 through 11 provoke us to think about what it means for the nation of Israel to be the people of God. In his book, In God's Shadow, 2012, Michael Walzer of Princeton notes that Israel began with two different but related covenants, one with Abraham based upon kinship, family, and birthright as a chosen people, and another with Moses based upon a legal covenant, a nation, law, and a people who might be chosen, but who also must freely choose. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul redefines both the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. As for Abrahamic lineage, he writes, They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. And of course, Paul was famous for his insistence that no person will be justified before God by keeping the Mosaic law. To the Galatians and Colossians, Paul wrote that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To the Ephesians, he wrote that Jesus made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus said similar things. Don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as, a, as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And observant Jews complained that Jesus ignored the Mosaic law and welcomed ritually impure Gentiles. The first and most divisive flashpoint for the first believers, who were a tiny sect of Judaism, was whether Gentile converts had to observe the Mosaic law. Whatever its many theological and political ambiguities, ancient and modern, Paul insists in Romans 11.29 that Israel's election as God's people is irrevocable. And their divine election comes with a specific vocation. 
When God called Abraham to form a people for himself, he said that he would bless not only Jews, but all peoples on earth. When he repeated his covenant to Isaac, he re reiterated his inclusive love for all the world. In you, Isaac, all nations on earth will be blessed. Genesis 26, 5. And when Jacob used a rock for a pillow and dreamed a dream at Bethel, God again repeated verbatim, In you, Jacob, all peoples on earth will be blessed. There's a simultaneous narrowing and expansion of God's action in history, a movement from the particular to the universal. God called a single individual, Abraham, and promised to bless all the world through him. There's a progressive expansion in God's promise. God vowed to make of Abraham a great nation. Paul described Abraham as a father of many nations. We then read that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. And so Paul describes Abraham as the father of us all. So through one particular person, God enacted his universal embrace of all humanity. The most provocative point of Walter's book is that while the Hebrew Bible contains a lot about politics, it isn't really interested in politics. Rather, it presents us with a radical anti-politics. Since God is sovereign, Caesar is secondary. The prophets, for example, were poets of social justice and the most important form of political speech in Israel, but they weren't political activists with any program. In contrast to Greek philosophers, says Walzer, the biblical writers never attach great value to politics as a way of life. Politics, he says, is simply not recognized by the biblical writers as a centrally important or human, humanly fulfilling activity. In place of radically relativized politics, Walter says that the people of God are called to a way of life, like Micah 6.8, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God, protect the weak, feed the poor, free the slaves, welcome the alien. The sovereign God calls each one of us to a larger community that's characterized by what he calls fellow feeling. That is, we trust ourselves to God alone and are responsible for each other. For the Eucharist at my church, we gather around the altar. We begin by inviting the children to join us in singing a short song. God welcomes all, strangers and friends. His love is strong, and it never ends. That was Peter's lesson in Acts chapter 10 and 11, that Abraham's God of the Jews shows no favoritism. He welcomes all. And just how radical is that divine inclusivity? It's so inclusive that even ritually impure Gentiles and pagan idolaters can become part of the people of God. 
and it's the vocation of God's people to reflect his character by welcoming all people everywhere. For books this week, I review a small volume of poetry. The author is Scott Cairns. The title, Compass of Affection, Poems New and Selected. Brewster, Massachusetts, Paraclete Press, 2006. The book is 161 pages. Scott Cairns, the Catherine Payne Middlebush Chair in English at the University of Missouri, has won numerous awards for his dozen books of poetry, memoir, essays, and translations. This book can no longer claim to be new, having been published in 2006, but that's really besides the point. It collects 85 poems from four of Cairns's previous works that had been published from 1985 to 2006. Cairns is a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy, and that spiritual passion is evident in his poetry. These poems challenge both mind and heart. He's also a savvy social critic. Readers can decide for themselves, and there's no accounting for personal taste, but Annie Dillard graces the dust jacket of this book with this following blurb. Scott Cairns is one of the best poets alive. Among Cairns's many other books, readers might also enjoy Idiot Psalms, 2014, which is a collection of 53 new poems, and then a newly released book, Endless Life, Poems of the Mystics, originally published in 2007 and newly published in 2014. It includes 116 adaptations and translations, or what you might call paraphrases, of the writings of 37 Christian mystics. Once again, Scott Cairns, Compass of Affection, 85 poems. For movies this weekend, I review a title called Lay Weekend. It's actually a British comedy from the year 2014. Nick and Meg are a British couple who spend a weekend in Paris for their 30th wedding anniversary in order to see if there's anything left of their marriage except acrimony. The answer seems to be no. Meg asks, after the kids are gone, what's left of us? It's a painful question, for their adult son is an unemployed pothead who specializes in watching television. Meg berates Nick, unloads three decades of bitterness, and says she wants out. Nick has been sacked from his job as a philosophy professor, and he wonders, how'd I become such a mediocre person? In Paris, they meet Morgan, one of Nick's old friends, who offers a different perspective on a midlife crisis. Nick and Meg aren't fun to watch, and the narrative feels contrived. 
But for some viewers, the story will surely cut close to the bone. The moral of the story seems to be that good enough just might be good enough. And that's a good thing. Lay Weekend from 2014. And for poetry this week, in keeping with my essay on the nation of Israel as the people of God, we've posted a poem by Yehudi Amachai. Amachai lived from 1924 to the year 2000 as an Israeli poet. He was considered by many, both in Israel and internationally, as Israel's greatest modern poet. The title of the poem that we've posted is called The Place Where We Are Right. Yehuda Amachai. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 3rd, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.